Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast which unwraps the bigger issues in the latest food books. This week I'm with New York food writer Sharon Wee, whose book Growing Up in a Nonya Kitchen tells the story of Peranakan cuisine, a largely unknown type of cookery from Singapore, Malaysia and Malacca, which is part of a craft culture binding Chinese women, including Sharon's mother, into the fabric of a very particular lifestyle. You know, I, I call her the last of the professional housewives because that was really their uh, life. You know, I mean, she sewed my pajamas, she did embroidery, she sewed the curtains for Chinese New Year, and she made all these delectable quays and days of cooking for Chinese New Year. Sharon's book, which first came out in 2012 in Singapore, has become much better known recently as the subject of plagiarism in an astonishing story that has gripped the food community over the last few months. Now, she's not allowed to talk about it for legal reasons, and I'm much more interested in a food culture that was part of my childhood in Penang anyway. So let's go straight back to Sharon's mother's kitchen in Singapore to find out more about the history of the nonyas and the babas and the recipes that give us a glimpse of a time gone by. My mom um, grew up during the war and her education was actually disrupted by the war. So she was semi-literate. So she had all these recipes memorized and um, she learned it through my father's grandmother. And it was a very grueling way of training because she actually had to cook for this blind grandmother. And every time the grandmother tried her food, if it was not up to standard, she would spit it out. And the poor young bride at the age of 17 had to do it all over again. And and so, you know, they had... um, in that this young bride, who was the eldest daughter-in-law, the first daughter-in-law in the family, had to cook for this extended family, a blind grandmother, father-mother-in-law, whom she hardly met because they were, my parents were matchmade. And so she had to cook continuously for brothers-in-law, grand-aunts and aunts who would just drop by any moment because they all lived a, a, across from each other in this uh, particular neighbourhood. And so she had to commit everything to memory. And as she got older, she got um, my sisters to type them out. She got the maids to type them out. So we had Indonesian housekeepers and they would write in Malay. (laughs) And so it was really quite complicated. So you, you wanted to learn all these recipes from your mother herself. Unfortunately, that wasn't possible. So what happened was I brought home all these recipes that I um, had copied. That was in 2001. And at that point, I was in New I had been in New York for five years. Uh, prior to that, I was in Hong Kong and China. I worked for Mars Confectionery. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to type them out, make it into a bound copy for my nieces. And in August, I'm going to go home and learn how to cook from my mom. And lo and behold, at the end of August, um, she was admitted to hospital. And she never came out of it. Maybe just one night, and believe it or not, it was just one night, she came home. She took a look around her kitchen just to make sure everything was in order. And she ended up back in hospital and she never returned. Um, So I never learned how to cook from her. But thankfully, I have a brother-in-law who 
really liked certain dishes, and he actually sent my sister over to observe my mom type it all out, and and so my sister was sort of a repository of my mom's cooking skills, and she told me these are the things that you should do, and this is the recipe, and mommy did it this way, etc. And then there were obviously lots of gaps. You know, I interviewed my grand aunts as well. About their cooking techniques, and what you manage to put together in the book is a real sense of who your mother was.、Um, I can hear her. You tell so many wonderful stories about her. So it's much more than just the food that she she cooked, and the depth of knowledge that she had. I can't imagine anyone still cooking that way. Do tell us about this nonya food.、Um, I grew up, as I told you, in Penang and Ipoh, and my parents were absolutely obsessed with with Malay food of all different types, and they probably cooked nonya food. But it was when I went back, and somebody who was showing me around there said, "Have you tried the nonya cafe?" I'd never heard of nonya food. Of course, this is where the real riches lie. Tell us where it comes from. So, the nonyas. And the babas are collectively known as Peranakans, and they're actually descended from Chinese immigrant men who came before the 1900s,、um, as far back as maybe 1500s, 1600s, and a lot of them actually first landed in Malacca, and because at that point apparently women were not allowed out of China, so they married. The natives,、uh, the native women, and、um, eventually, when they formed their own community, they intermarried very frequently. In fact, recently, I looked at my family tree, and I realized、um, <laughs> I was interconnected to a couple of、uh, people I've read in textbooks. Now,、um, th- they went to mission schools,、um, and they also picked up English, I think. And they became、um, very conversant with the British colonial administrators at that time. So many babas worked in the civil service and in the trading houses. So, for example, my father actually worked in one of the trading houses,、uh, Fraser and Eve. And、um, a lot of these babas pre nineteen hundreds also、um, acquired a lot of wealth through. Rubber, the rubber industry, opium, which is where my family, my mother's family,、uh, is descended from, and、um, also through shipping. So they acquired this kind of wealth, and there was a lot of、uh, display of it, whether it's through the architecture, and especially if you go to Singapore, Malacca, and Penang, you see that architecture, the decorative arts, the. Uh, sarung kabaya, the fashion, but most of all is the cuisine that they're most famous for at this point, right? So,、um, the, now the the cuisine is a good amalgamation of various cultures. So they've married the spices and the coconut milk, which、um, the locals would have used, but they also incorporated things like pork, which, you know, in a Muslim Malay dish. They wouldn't feature pork. That's very unusual, so, isn't it? And that would have come from the Portuguese, for example. So, you know, when you said that the babas were marrying the local girls, the native girls, well, those native girls were a mix of Portuguese and、uh, Dutch as well, and、uh, because there was a lot of pioneers coming from all over the world with those genes and with those cultures. Well, it's very interesting you say that because 
with the Portuguese influence, you do have something called ayam tempura, which is a gravy. Uh, and the word tempura is apparently Portuguese. And then there's also the use of eggs in dessert. In fact, recently I posted on my Instagram, um, you know, this kuei, this beautiful cake that I love. I specifically, uh, I, I think it's my favorite. And it has um, egg and coconut uh, milk and pandan. It's infused with pandan. Interestingly enough, I do have relatives who have that European uh, feature. Uh, I think my grandparents, uh, my grandfather for sure. And in 2007, there was a genetic research done on the Pradakans and I donated my blood uh, to determine the ancestry. Mm. So the the findings were uh, revealed recently. And? And 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 um, there is some speculation that there is the Southern European uh, gene pool in there. Mm, interesting, interesting. So what we've got is a very long line of Chinese migrants uh, living <laughs> in Singapore for you, uh, but influenced by their people from Malacca, Penang. Uh, and it, it, mm-hmm. Indonesia in general. So you've got that wonderful sort of mix. But importantly, they had wealth, which meant they had time. Um, and you've got a wonderful picture of your mother in this Gatsby style house in the in the introduction. I mean, your parents lived a good life, didn't you? You all did as you were growing up in Singapore. What what impact did that have on the food on your table? The Paralican women were actually um, housebound for a long time. Until actually 1900, uh, in the early 1900s, the English or rather the British colonial education administrator actually told the leaders of the community, you have to start a a school for the girls. They'll get restless and bored and they are going to be mothers of future leaders of society. (laughs) So, So these women actually were for the most part at home and they were judged on their cooking skills and their sewing skills when the prospective mothers-in-law came around to decide, um, you know, whether this was going to make a good daughter-in-law at home. And, and to a large extent, it was the leisurely lifestyle, but it's also the strict tutelage yeah. um, uh, from their, from their moms and, and their grandmothers that you had to learn how to cook right. You had to sit properly. You had to behave a certain set, uh, style. And, and so, um, it, it did have quite a bit to do with the wealth and privilege. Those kind of skills were very much about the status of a young lady and her marriageability, I imagine. Um, But actually, when it comes to Chinese New Year, those skills really are put to the test. Your mother even made new curtains, didn't she? Oh, yes, she did. (laughs) She did. She she made new curtains. She got my brothers-in-law to paint the house. Uh, She got new plants. (laughs) Um, She really cleaned out the whole house from top to bottom. That was how important Chinese New Year was. Right down to new shoes, new underwear. And, and, and even now, I make sure that all my kids, I mean, I have two kids, that they get brand new underwear, brand new socks for Chinese New Year. Everyone has to go for a haircut. New towels, new sheets, everything was brand new. It's extraordinary. <laughs> As you can imagine then what the kind of food is on the table. So take us through this extraordinary feast and feasts, because it's over a period of time, isn't it? 
It was. So in my mom's time, when she grew up, she had seven new sets of clothes for the first seven days of Chinese New Year. And I would think along with new jewelry and all the bangles and bracelets all came out of the safe in my time. <laughs> and and so um, my mom probably started right after Christmas uh, to prepare for Chinese New Year because it's either January or February, right? It alternates. She would have um, started to bake all the cookies and the pineapple tarts, which she was famous for. And her friends, she, she actually started doing this for her friends, to give to friends. And then friends over time said, Mrs. Wee, I love your tarts and I would love to get them for my friends. And so she started to make them uh, to sell to these friends who wanted to give to other friends. And it was a cottage industry. And actually, some people actually still do that in this yeah. day and age. So then leading up to Chinese New Year, we had um, uh, what we call our original web van grocer, Ah Seng, who would come in, take down the order from my mother for the two weeks leading up to Chinese New Year. And that would include bakulua, which is, uh, you know, these are the Indonesian nuts, um, and, and they would spike in price as it gets closer to Chinese New Year. And then the fish maw, which is that spongy, uh, you know, what we might call the fish stomach. And, um, you know, she'll make all these dishes leading up to Chinese New Year. Huge pots, huge, huge pots, because the flavours matured over time. Your mother was part of that generation who absolutely loved putting stuff on the table, but she was a feeder. There was nothing more important to her than putting food and watching people love it. She, I mean, it, it seems to me that she would be an influencer now, wouldn't she? She was coming up with such amazing recipes that looked so wonderful as well. I mean, how do you think that she would have imagined Instagram? Do you think she would have had a go at that like you are now? Absolutely not, actually. <laughs> <laughs> because th that generation of women were very, um, they, they were strict guardians of their own little secrets. Ah, of course. They did not want to publicize it. In fact, um, I had some opposition and reservations among my relatives about this cookbook. Because, uh, and you can ask any Peranakan family, you know, how their extended family might feel. And for the most part, maybe a generation ago or 20 years ago, they didn't really want to share yeah. their tips. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Your mother's cakes, though, your second food moment is the Nonya cakes. Oh, how do you pronounce that? Kwe? Kwe, that's right. They're traditionally a labour of love because of the meticulous preparation. I mean, this is the story that runs through the whole book, the amount of time it takes. I mean, having said that, I just made one of your curries, the simple curry, the simple chicken curry the other day. It took 20 minutes and it was absolutely delicious. So it's not to say that everything in the book takes time, but your mother certainly put a lot of time into it. Tell us about some of these kueh that she made. They are a labour of love in the sense that my mom would spend her afternoons weeding out the broken grains of the glutinous rice. Okay, and um, in the olden days, they actually ground their own rice to make rice flour, and they had a special, um, you know, like a stone mill. Yeah, and they would grind it with the with the water, and then they would 
put it, you know, cover it up with cloth, put something heavy to get to extract all that water out, dry it out. And thankfully, I don't have to do it now, right? There's, uh, you know, ready-made glutinous rice flour, yeah. rice flour. But the tricky bit was also the coconut because, you know, even even when I tested my recipes, and, and they are good uh, in the sense that we all use coconut milk in cans or packages. My father can actually tell the difference. And he'll say, you know, there's number one coconut milk and there's number two coconut milk. And it's, it's complicated. Now, my mom always tells me, and this is true, that during the war particularly, Nonya women uh, who had fallen on hard times, uh, they did two things. They pawned their jewelry and, and they also made their quays to sell, uh-huh. to supplement the household's wow. income. And they would go from door to door to sell their quay. Amazing. So that's an incredibly female uh, dish that is actually part of a survival tactic as well. Absolutely. Um, and, and that's where the food came in. It came in handy because when, you know, money was tight or, um, you know, when the housewife wanted to create a little bit of a career of her own after her children had grown up, um, she could turn to what she had been trained to do. Yeah to do this fascinating the role of the quay your next book um your third food moment is again about the ingredients it's about the her your mother's trademark speciality her curry powder now she like many nonias a lot of people used to make their own curry powder um the different spice grinders uh were very much about who your mother was though tell us about this so Curry powder was definitely what she was proudest of. And she kept la- large round rattan trays to contain the various spice ingredients. And she would painstakingly inspect the different grains, weed them out, you know, weed out the little pebbles. And, you know, she would rinse them, dry them in the sun, take them back in, look at the sky, <laughs> go, okay, today's cloudy. Okay. And then the next day, sunnier. Okay, so so it took it took a while to, to get the, the spices dry and fragrant. And then she would actually fry them in this large iron wok. It was so big. It was probably like a baby's bassinet. <laughs> and then they would have this warm, fragrant aroma that would waft through the entire house. And it indicated to her that the spices had, quote unquote, bloomed. And then the the spices were then put into these very large brown paper bags and taken to a grinder mm-hmm. to mill. And for the most part, these grinders were Indian they knew what to do, and it had to be of a certain uh, fineness. And and then she would bring that back, and she would it would still be very warm and highly aromatic. And she would divide the powder into several plastic bags and vacuum seal them, um, and give them away as mm-hmm. love gifts to her friends. Now, on other uh, when we, we talk about other ways of grinding uh, her spices, you know, she had the batu lasong, which is the mortar and the pestle. And there was also batu gilling, which looks like a big slab of marble with a rolling pin. Mm. And I actually went all the way to Serangoon in Singapore a few years ago. I bought one. I went on a wild goose chase to look for one. And I packed it 
shipped it over and it broke my uh, coffee table. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I wanted to recreate all these accoutrements or <laughs> apparatus yeah. to recreate my mom's recipes and that thing broke along the way. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I've still got my parents' pestle and mortar, which that came from Penang. I mean, I've kept it all this time. I will not let it go. And, you know, it, it's so important, isn't it? It's like somehow... It's not just a recipe. It's not just an ingredient. It is touching the past and taking it with you into your life. And I will pass my pestle and mortar on from my parents onto my children. They'll have to fight over it. You know, there are lots of superstitions Ooh, about doubt. which I, I learned in the, during these interviews with my uh, Auntie Patty, Auntie Mabel. Um, so you can't crack it. Right. You can't you can't crack it and you can't cross over it, um, you know, because it's bad luck cross over it and <laughs> when you're pounding you typically pound on on the floor oh i don't and <laughs> <laughs> because it's so heavy well for me i i do it because i'm so scared that i'm gonna crack my kitchen counter and i actually you know i stoop on the floor you know using my kid's stool and and i pound and and um you, you're not supposed to cross over ah. with the all that sambal blachan in there you you can't cross over okay. it and you can't use it you can't pound it until it wears so thin that it actually cracks yeah of course I wouldn't dream and um and then the nonyas also because you know in the old days the inside was very smooth mm. And and there are a few mortars and pestles where it, th- there are like grooves, so it's a little bit rougher surface. They don't use those. No, mine's absolutely and smooth then, as a baby's bottom. <laughs> Much pounding. <laughs> yes, and you and you season it with uh, dry coconut. You know the dry grated coconut. Okay. You you use it to take out all the little grits out of the little tiny grooves that. Uh, you might have in a brand new Morton pestle. Fascinating. So fascinating those were the stuff. things I learned. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Those were the things I learned, yeah. Your Thank final you. food moment is popia. There are so many moments in your book. It's it's absolutely brimming over with your own memories, your mother's knowledge and skills and her life, but also reaching back into this rich pedigree of the Parankan people. Um, why the popia then? Popia... It's um, what you would call like the Chinese spring rolls. You have to, you know, grate or shred, you know, the turnip the, and, and cut the bamboo shoots. We actually cook it with uh, pork and shrimp stock. And um, so you find like little tiny bits of shrimp and slivers of belly pork. And then, you know, you use um, this nice what we call popia skin, spring roll skin. You also line it with lettuce leaves, uh, Chinese lettuce leaves. They look like romaine lettuce. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the chili sauce, garlic sauce, and the sweet uh, soy flour sauce. And um, then, you know, you put, you garnish it with bean sprouts and boiled egg. Or, you know, if you want to be more intricate, it's like thinly sliced egg omelette. Um, and then Chinese sausage. So it's, 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 it's real. It's a real thing. It's extraordinary. And then there was always a family competition with me, my <laughs> brothers-in-law, my sisters, who could roll it best without breaking or tearing it, um, you know, and who can eat how many rolls. You know? <laughs> so, so, so my mom, my mom made it for our Sunday gatherings and also for uh, birthday parties uh, within the family. And it was really, 
really when the family came together, and it was really, you know, so much fun. You feel like we're all these Kennedys all competing at the dining table, right? Yeah. I mean, who's who's rolling the best, or you know, how many we can eat, and um, so it brings back all these lovely, wonderful, fond memories of my family celebrations, mm. which is the essence of your book. Yes. For us as readers, it is a glimpse into a world uh, that many of us don't know. And this is the holy grail, isn't it? Certainly for food editors, the next big thing. Uh, Certainly in this country, you know, New York is a much more diverse community. How did it go down in New York? You know, I did not market my book outside of Singapore, only because when I launched it in 2012, very little was known about Singapore cuisine. There was a lot more interest Mm -hmm. in Thai food. And so much has changed um, globally in terms of with the advent of the internet and social influences and restaurants. Uh, There's a lot more cosmopolitan um, lifestyles, right? More people are traveling. And so... In New York, my friends would always ask me, oh, you know, let's have a book talk or let's sell your book in our school book fair. I say, no, 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 you you all wouldn't just relate to it. But then, um, you know, there's a lot more interest in it uh, right now. And I actually think that in England, in, in London in particular, you would have a lot more cosmopolitan food than in New York, believe it or not. Really? Uh, there are wonderful, extraordinary Malaysian restaurants. It's a very mm. active uh, active community out there. And I can walk into Waitrose and get coffee leaves and Holland chilies uh, and lemongrass. Um, I'm very um, impressed, fascinated, mm. in fact. Yeah, it's because we love the stories. If you read our media, it is absolutely packed with stories of of new finds of ancient cuisines. Um, So this absolutely ticks our box. So the original edition is going to be republished. Um, Thanks to the the subjects that we cannot talk about. But that's great news for you. So congratulations on that. And then next year, tell us some news. So I... I'm working on the 10th anniversary edition. I've learned new new things. When, when, I, when I look back at my mom's recipes recently to compare them against what I've written, for example, nasi biryani, which is a, you know, a, a biryani dish, an Indian dish. I, for the life of me, had no idea what kuma kuma was when I first saw this about 15 years ago. And recently, I took a look at it again and I said, Hmm, I wonder if it's saffron threads because I couldn't figure out where the yellow coloring came from. And in my first recipe, I actually said add a dash of yellow coloring. So I researched it on the internet, believe it or not. And, and yes, indeed, kuma kuma refers to saffron. So it's little, little anecdotes like that that I've picked up revisiting those recipes all over again. And then there are techniques because, you know, recipes live alongside you and there are always tweaks to it. And throughout my mom's time, she actually tweaked her recipes as well. That's why she came up with several versions. Sometimes it was one teaspoon and became, you know, half teaspoon or two teaspoon. So that's what I'm going to do. 
Good. So perhaps the first book was a, an homage to your mother and perhaps the next one will be a little bit more about you and your journey through those recipes. If your mother were alive now, what would she say about this journey that you've been on through these books? Well, I think she would have been quietly proud that all her life she loved cookbooks. She loved the images. She couldn't necessarily read the words, but you know, she she really admired cookbooks for their images and and that sense. You know, when you open and you lift the pages and you look through them, and I think she would have been quietly proud that there was this cookbook with her photo in front of it. But at the same time, I think she would have had some trepidation, like, oh my goodness, you know, like you're sharing my recipes with the rest of the world. <laughs> you're telling my <laughs> and, secrets. You're telling my secrets and you're telling everyone how we celebrate food in our family. Um, because, you know, there there is some sense of pro- um, proprietary um, or also prim and properness uh, mm-hmm. among the Nonias. And she was of that generation. Yeah. Um, what is. what of Nonya cooking now, Sharon? How has it, very, very briefly, would the Nonyas now, who live in Singapore, in, in Penang, in Malacca, in Indonesia, what would they say about this book? I do have a lot of um, readers coming up and saying thank you for documenting all this. It brings back memories of my grandmother or my mother or I no longer live in Singapore, and it captures that moment when I was growing up in Singapore, very similar to me. And that really is so special for me because um, I'm, I'm just glad that I documented this for history. You can buy all the books featured on Cooking the Books by clicking on the bookshop tab at jillysmith.com. And while you're there, do sign up for the newsletter to keep up with all my news, including the monthly supper club. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. And I'll see you next week when we head into winter with Siberian food writer, Alisa Timoshkina.